Uh, the Bible reading today is from 2 Samuel, chapter 13, verses 1 to 22. You can find that on page 312 uh, in the Bibles in the pews in front of you. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimeath, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard? Morning after morning, won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight, so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it from him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You'll be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, He hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, Get up and get out. No, she said. Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe. For this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all of this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon 
because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Thank you, we can be here this morning. And I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart may be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord, our Rock. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of the key distinctives of the Bible is that it just tells it as it is. It doesn't mince words. And this is absolutely the case uh, with this section of scripture that we're looking at today. In recounting the story of the rape of Tamar, the Bible is not in any way condoning the abuse and destructive behaviour in a belief that boys can be boys and they can just get away with such terrible things. Importantly, what we see in this story is typical of the dynamics that occur in relationships marked by domestic abuse and domestic violence. And so I've chosen this day as we look at this story to launch our domestic abuse policy for us as a church. Now, if you haven't seen it, uh, that's it here. It was up the back. There was about 20 copies this morning. Uh, You're very welcome to take one if you haven't got the email from it. And if you need to find out, please just contact the office uh, and we can email it to you. And so if you want a copy, please do grab one at the back uh, and read it. Well, this story that we just read, which is a challenging piece of scripture, is here to remind us that terrible things do happen and that they bring enormous chaos and destruction to people's lives. The Bible doesn't shy away from looking at and addressing tough topics of life, and we believe that neither should we as a church. All the statistics reveal that domestic violence and abuse readily affect people within the church, within our church. And because of this, we need to be bold enough to not just raise the topic and talk about it, but to have a concrete way of responding and dealing with the issue and helping those who are affected by it. Now, as we look at this passage today in 2 Samuel, we're going to see that there is a perpetrator, Amnon, there's a victim, Tamar, And there are bystanders. We have Jonadab, the advisor, Absalom, the brother, and David, the father. And it's worth saying, I really would encourage everyone to read this because we can't talk in detail about a lot of the issues here. It's 15 pages of policy which goes through what abuse is, how to help people, how to respond, uh, with a lot of helps there for people in a practical sense. Uh, And so we do want to have response today in terms of helping people think in a brief way about this issue. But what I want to do firstly is just look at the perpetrator of the violence, which is Amnon, before we move on to look at the victim and the bystanders. And I want to read to you, if you've got your Bibles, you can have them open, uh, 2 Samuel 13, verse 1, in the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now the perpetrator in this story is Amnon. He's the half-brother of Tamar. And the way he is presented in the narrative is he's a violent, he's a controlling man, and he uses Tamar for his own sinful purposes. He appears to be a man of privilege. He's the firstborn son of the king, so he's the heir to the throne in many ways. And as the firstborn, he displays all the traits of someone who sees himself as deeply entitled. And entitled people think they can just take And it's what happens with Tamar, and he uses Tamar for his own sinful purposes. He manipulates his father to get what he wants. You could say he grooms him. 
And it's worth noting, Tamar was not so much a person to love, but just an object to use, is what actually is presented by the text here. Uh, There's no sense at all of any relationship. And from verse 1, we're told apparently that he loved her with a great intensity. But what we know is by the end of the story is it really was just unbridled sexual desire that he had for Tamar. It wasn't love. What he wanted to do was, and it's a terrible phrase here in the text, he wanted to do things to her. It's an awful thing to read. And by the end of this encounter with Tamar, we read these chilling words in verse 14, but he refused to listen to her as she begged for mercy and for him to leave her alone. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. It's a dreadful story of domestic abuse and violence in particular, sexual abuse. Well, where does domestic violence and abuse begin? It's worth asking that question as we think about uh, Amnon, the perpetrator. And all the experts will say it begins with this desire to exercise power and control over the other. And what you see here with Amnon is a desire to use Tamar for his own gratification. And he does it sexually with her. And he exercises a power and a control over her. And what I want to just uh, do now is just reflect on what we've actually got in the domestic abuse policy in the way it defines perpetrators. And I want to say a couple of things in terms of what we did with the policy and put it together. And there's two things just to note, and there's more here to read. Um, One is that abuse can be perpetrated by men and women... And statistics tell us that both men and women, boys and girls, will experience abuse. And that's why with the policy we've talked about victims and haven't got gendered language. But it is worth noting, secondly, that the policy states that the statistics show that this is often a gendered problem. In other words, uh, it's not a neutral problem. More women are abused at the hands of men than the reverse. It's just one of the statistics that is very obvious. And so read the policy for more on this. Uh, But that's a reality we've got to come to grips with, that as men, this is a common problem in a way that is not so common with women abusing men. Well, Kelsey, what might domestic abuse look like or feel like? Yes. um, So domestic abuse occurs within a spectrum of behaviours. It can be difficult to recognise it because of that. Conflict between two adults who are in an equal relationship is normal, not necessarily abusive. It's important to note there is a difference between a bad marriage or a relationship that needs the help of counseling and a marriage or relationship that is marked by abuse. At the heart of abuse is the goal of the assertion of power over and control of another. It's been said that while tactics may vary, the creation and use of fear and intimidation by words and conduct are the key elements within this dynamic. It inherently and inevitably disempowers another and is the opposite of love. So it can be controlling behavior. It can be coercive and physical behavior. Uh, It can also be destructive criticism and verbal abuse. It doesn't have to be physical Uh, It can be, uh, for want of a better term, an abuse of male power. It can be pressure tactics. It can be sexual abuse. Uh, It can be a disrespect and emotional abuse of the other. It can be a breaking of trust. It can be isolation and relational abuse. 
It can be harassment. Uh, or it can be threats. And I would encourage you in particular um, to read through the detailed section of what abuse looks like, particularly uh, if you think someone may be in an abusive relationship or if you're experiencing great difficulties in your marriage, it may actually help point out what is happening. But what we want to do now is, having thought about what um, abuse is and thinking about the perpetrator, is look and think about the victim. And Kelsey's going to speak on that. See, I want to spend a few minutes looking at the victim of this act, who is Tamar. And I want to look at the ramifications for her specifically, but also for victims of sexual abuse and assault in general. Now, I worked with women in forced prostitution and sex trafficking for about 10 years. And I believe and I've seen that being sinned against in this form of sexual abuse or sexual assault is something that goes deep into the soul and identity of a person in a way that other sins do not. It affects a person to the very core of who they are. All other sins are outside the body, but this is a violation against the body itself. And as we are interconnected beings, it becomes a violation of the soul too. The effects of this type of sexual sin on the victim are holistic because we're holistic people. They're affected physically, psychologically and emotionally, spiritually, even socially as we see that Tamar was. It's a violation of the deepest kind of trust, of intimacy, of love, of self-worth, of choice, of dignity. Now, we don't know much about Tamar. We know that she was the daughter of David by one of his wives and the sister of Absalom. We know that Amnon was their half-brother. We know from this passage that she was very beautiful. We know she was good-hearted. She wanted to help her brother Amnon. She was obedient. She did what her father asked of her. And she was righteous, as we'll see from her response to Amnon. We also know she was a virgin. It says in verse 18, she wore the modest garments that virgins wore. And we know that she certainly did nothing to lead Amnon on or suggest anything by her demeanor, her dress, or her actions. In fact, quite the opposite. It was her modesty that was on display, not her sexuality. So as Bruce has said, Amnon was so filled with desire and lust for Tamar that he was physically ill. But he was prevented from doing anything to her because of her virtue and because of who she was. So his friend Jonadab comes up with a shrewd game plan. Feign illness, call for Tamar through their father the king, get her to bake for him. Get her close so that he can get what he wants from her. Tamar obeys her father's request willingly but innocently. And of course, what she believes is an act of kindness and service to her brother and their father ends in horror and shame as Amnon rapes her. I want to say, sexual assault is never an accident. It's a choice. It is a deliberate decision of, de of domination, of power and control, of selfishness and evil. Amnon displayed all of those things but by contrast, in this moment, we see that Tamar is a righteous woman. And she says four things to Amnon that show her wisdom and faith as she pleads with him. In verse 12, she shows her concern for God's honor. Three times she begs him, don't do this, my brother. 
And her concern there is for the honor of God's name. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. It brings dishonor to God. The second thing is, in verse 13, she shows her concern for her own honor. What about me? Where could I ever go with my disgrace? She's asking, don't you care about me? The third thing, also in 13, is she shows her concern for Amnon's honor, even in what he's doing to her. And what about you, she says? You'd be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. He was heir to the throne and stood to lose quite a lot, potentially, by this action. She's asking, don't you even care about yourself? And the fourth thing, also in verse 13, she appeals to due process. She says, please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. It's a last desperate attempt to get away from the hands of her attacker. Now the twist in the passage comes with the intense feelings of hatred that Amnon feels toward Tamar afterward. Verse 15 says, he hated her more than he had loved her. So he has her thrown out of his house. Not just thrown out, but the doors bolted behind her, as if he is now the one who needs to be protected from her. And after the horror of the act that Amnon has just committed, Tamar experiences another terrible violation, and that is rejection. Don't forget that an unmarried woman's social status and eligibility to be married hinged on her purity. And after taking so much from Tamar, Amnon makes her shame a permanent social status by rejecting her at her most vulnerable. The king's virgin daughter is suddenly unloved, unwanted, and utterly humiliated. For someone experiencing sexual assault, the humiliation that occurs is compounded in the soul in experiencing first the shame and then the rejection. Of women I've worked with, the shame and the feeling unwanted and unlovable are the most damaging and hardest to heal wounds. Bodies heal, but these wounds of rejection and shame are the ones that are so deep in our souls that they get covered up and painted over in order to survive. But deep down, they shape our identity, they shape our beliefs about ourselves, and they shape our beliefs about God. The scene in this section of chapter 13 closes with a really sad description of what becomes of Tamar. It says, so Tamar lived as a desolate woman in the house of her brother Absalom. Amnon has taken literally everything from Tamar, and she's left desolate. It's the same word used to describe cities that have been laid to waste during war. They're desolate. They're destroyed. She is defiled and disgraced. She's been physically harmed. She's been emotionally laid to waste. She has been socially desolate. She's left socially desolate. There's no hope. There's no future here in this story for her. Tamar asked, where could I get rid of my disgrace? And these are the words of a victim of domestic violence and sexual abuse. The shame and disgrace feel like they'll never go away. If you are a victim of domestic abuse or violence here today, please do reach out and seek help. And we'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. What I want to do now is move to the third point, which is think about the bystanders. So we've thought about the abusers, which are the perpetrators, the victim... But there's also a group that's often overlooked, and it's a larger group. It's the bystanders. And it's interesting, there's three people in this story that are bystanders. And they were men, 
they had power to stop the abuse take place and each of them in their own way actually just did nothing. Firstly, there's Jonadab, sorry, um, and he's the advisor. He's described as being very shrewd and the book of 2 Samuel portrays him as someone who is very clever in the way he relationally works to climb the ladder, you would say. And here he is as an advisor to Amnon, heir to the throne. And in the story, he knows what Amnon wants. He knows he wants to abuse Tamar. And he does absolutely nothing. And he's totally complicit in what takes place. He aids and abets him and gives him ideas on how to get close for Tamar. And the thing to note is friends don't let friends abuse other people. Uh, They call it out and they do not become complicit in the abuse and what's taking place and turn a blind eye to it. So that's Jonadab. But secondly, there's Absalom. We read in verse 20, her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? And it's interesting, he's suspicious about Amnon that he's taken Tamar and raped her. And the obvious question is this, why didn't he do something? Now he finds out that his suspicions are true and I think in one of the most awful responses to a victim, he says these words, be quiet now my sister, he's your brother, Uh, don't take this thing to heart. In other words, don't do anything about it and it's not that bad really. Well, she should do something about it and it was dreadful. It is a shocking response that Absalom gives. Now, we learn later that he actually goes and kills Amnon and murders him. But the way he treats his sister is appalling. It's a shocking response that Absalom gives. And he's basically saying it's not that bad. And let me say, Senior Minister, rape, sexual abuse, domestic abuse is bad and it's wrong. Any form of abuse is bad and evil and wrong. And friends, if we have a sister here who is suffering abuse or a brother, we must protect them from danger. As a church, we're actually all brothers and sisters in Christ as a community of God's people and we need to look out for each other's well-being. And we should never minimise what people are going through saying, don't take this thing to heart, it's not a big thing. Let me ask us all the question, why is it with domestic abuse that so often we do not do something? And one of the issues and one of the reasons this has been raised in the church over the last couple of years by Julia Baird is, and I sat with Julia for an hour and asked her about why she'd written, she said, because she was seeking the church to reform. Because so often it was just swept under the carpet or denied that it happened. Is it because... Uh, we keep quiet because it seems so shameful to raise difficult topics and it is difficult. Is it because it's easier to keep the peace than to have that difficult conversation? And one thing to note is, if I can say from a practical thing, our advice is always never go to a perpetrator first. Never. You want to speak to victims and actually see if it's real and then work with them And whatever happens needs to be because they give permission for it to happen. Do we keep quiet because it takes courage to expose a member of our family or a close family friend and we know these people and there's a part of us that thinks surely this isn't too bad 
And let me say, I've seen that happen. Domestic abuse is what I call an uncomfortable truth to be confronted by in churches because one of the problems is we know each other and we're so interconnected in each other's lives that when the possibility of abuse raises its heads, we just think, oh, no, that can't possibly be true. They go to church. That wouldn't happen, would it? But it does happen. And then there's the third bystander, King David. Jonadab knew, did nothing. Absalom suspected, did nothing. King David, here's the sad thing, he's actually got no clue, and he's the father. And most likely he was blinded by a favouritism towards his eldest son, Amnon, and he fails to see the abuse of his daughter at the hands of his son. And we hear just two things in the whole episode from King David. The first is he gives permission um, for Tamar to be Amnon's cook, not knowing what's going on. And it's worth asking the question, how many kids have been abused because parents have not known what is going on? But secondly, it says in verse 21, when King David heard of all this, he was furious. But that's all he did. David gets furious when he hears about it, but he doesn't do any more. His anger was right, and it's a righteous anger that you have against domestic abuse and violence. But that anger should have led him to take action against Amnon and also to vindicate Tamar publicly and restore her dignity and place in the palace. But he does nothing. And anger must lead us to seek justice on behalf of victims, not stand by and do nothing. David the father should have done something. And when you read this story into Samuel and you realise that this is the king of God's people, it leaves you wanting a better king. You think, surely we've got to have a better king than this, a king that doesn't treat sisters as prostitutes, but prostitutes as sisters. A king who would not distance himself from the suffering of others, but would actually enter into it himself. A king who would not be silent in the face of injustice, but would actually speak up and judge the world. And there is such a king, and his name is Jesus, the greatest son of David, but without the flaws of David. And he calls us into a kingdom where our shame will be washed clean and injustice will be dealt with, where we'll not be desolate, but will flourish in a God-honouring community. Well, statistically, there are many people here today who have experienced this violence and horror that we're talking about. There are many more who have been deeply wounded by rejection, who carry the heavy burden of shame and who've been left desolate by sins that have been committed against them. We're holistic people, and sin affects us physically, psychologically, and socially. Shame and rejection carry with them deep wounds. I'd like to speak for a few minutes to those here who know this pain of domestic violence or sexual abuse. Being the victim of this particular kind of sin leaves scars that are more often than not permanent and life-altering. One of the most tragic pieces of Tamar's story is David's inaction and how greatly he failed his daughter. But what I want to say to those who are or who have suffered in this way, no matter what kind of earthly father you have, we have another father whose whole narrative, his whole great purpose and story is redemption. Tamar's father did nothing 
But we have a father who is an avenger of injustice, who will not stand by idly when you've been wronged. In Romans 12, Paul tells us, repay no one, evil for evil. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. If you need further assurance of this, Psalm 94 is another place that um, presents this picture of God. May I say to you, no matter what was done to you, God knows it, and he will not rest until his justice is served. Again, Amar's, Tamar's father did nothing, but we have a father who is a redeemer and a healer, a restorer of brokenness, who makes crowns of beauty to replace the crown of ashes that Tamar put on her head. Let me read to you some of the beautiful verses from Isaiah 61. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. Everlasting joy will be yours. Perhaps you feel some measure of responsibility for what has happened to you, some mix of guilt and shame that makes you question if you could have prevented it somehow. I wonder if Tamar looked back at that day and felt any unfounded responsibility for what happened or questioned if she could have done something differently. I said before, sexual abuse is never an accident, it's a choice. It is a deliberate decision to exert power over someone else. What happened to you is not your fault. You're not to blame. You didn't deserve it. You didn't ask for it. You are not worthless. You are not damaged goods. You are sinned against. Now, if you're a victim of abuse, we do want to encourage you in a few ways. And the first thing I want to say is, uh, if you are currently, or you know someone who is currently in a domestic abusive relationship, we would encourage you to get out. And I say that absolutely believing in the sanctity of marriage, And I absolutely want to keep marriages together as much as possible. But where there is abuse for the sake of the safety and the well-being of the victim, I would encourage them, if they are able to, they may not be, but if they are able to, to get out and we will absolutely support you in that decision. And I think that's very important that victims hear that because they can often feel very trapped and guilty wanting to honour God. Well, we want to say what is most important, what God what most wants is your safety and protection and to escape a violent or abusive relationship. Another thing is to get help. Speak to someone who is a professional. It's incredibly helpful to have someone support you in acknowledging that what has happened to you is wrong. The office has numbers of people that you can contact. The domestic violence policy has a help page with resources or just seek a trusted friend or a staff member to talk to. And thirdly, pray, cry out to Jesus. He knows what you've gone through. He will be your rock and your protection. 
He was stripped naked and abused on the cross. It's okay to come to him angry and to tell him what has happened. The Psalms are filled with prayers that give us words to express our hearts when we don't know what or how to pray, and that happens often in our lives, I think. Here are a few places that you might want to look. If you need a refuge, Psalm 46. If you're feeling forsaken, Psalm 22. If you're raging about what has happened, Psalm 88. If you're feeling sad, Psalm 6 and 10. And above all, know that because of Jesus' death on the cross, we are forgiven and made clean in his sight. In 2 Samuel, in the aftermath of Amnon's actions toward her, we read that Tamar lived as a desolate woman, defiled and disgraced. We are not desolate people. Guilt and shame are not our inheritance. Our Father does not stand by idly and do nothing. He has already acted in a mighty way by sending his son to secure and restore our dignity and mete out his justice. A son who, by the way, sought out and ministered deep healing to plenty of women with complicated sexual histories. And we're talking about this today here because we really want St. Matthew's to be a safe place of restoration and protection and healing for those who are experiencing injustice. Let me say a few words uh, to those who may be perpetrators. Well, you may know perpetrators. Um, you need to get help. And you need to seek God by repenting of what you've done or are doing. And I want to say this, we're not here, and I'm not here to condemn people. Uh, that is not my role, it's not our role as a church. But we are here to call you to change and repent of the re- abuse that you may be inflicting on another person. And there is hope for change in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But I do want to say there are not quick and easy solutions to what you've done and are doing. Forgiveness is possible, absolutely, for abusers. But please let me say this. I don't believe in a cheap grace that just sweeps under the carpet what you've done. Forgiveness is not downplaying the offence or pretending that it hasn't happened. It's not withholding appropriate legal or relational consequences against a perpetrator for the wrong that they've done to a victim. Forgiveness means that God will not hold your sins against you. But in receiving forgiveness, he calls you to repent and change your life and begin the long, slow road to restore the damage you've done and to seek deep change in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a call to get professional help. And let me close by talking to us as bystanders, which many of us may be. I want to encourage you to be brave and call this out. And as I've said before, not to seek out the perpetrator first, but to speak to victims because they are the ones who've been powerless and we actually need to put control back into their hands and ask them, are you being abused? How can we help? And if you want some practical suggestions on this, the policy has a number of pages in terms of how to actually deal with this when you confront it. And I encourage you, if you're suspicious of something, please read it or come and talk to a staff member. But what I want to do is close in prayer for us today. Uh, No doubt, this is probably not the happiest day to come to church, 
Um, but I want to say it's a very important day to be here and I want to thank you for coming, if, particularly if you've known this was the topic, because it is such an important thing that we do that we provide and we seek to maintain St Matthew's as a safe community for people to come and it is a haven for victims of domestic abuse and violence. Let us pray. Firstly, I want to pray for victims of abuse. Dear Lord, we just thank you that you love us, that you are our good, good Father. We pray this day for victims of abuse that they may know your strength and your love and your affirmation in the midst of their shame and rejection that they have experienced and may currently be experiencing. We pray give them strength to get help and wisdom to know how to escape the cycle of abuse that they may be caught in. I pray for us as bystanders. Dear Lord, give us strength and wisdom to help those being abused. Help us to have the courage of conviction to go and stand with victims and to not cast a blind eye to what we may see or hear. May we be vehicles of your grace to those in need. And for perpetrators of abuse, we ask, Lord, that you would convict them of the sin they are committing. And may you bring them to a deep repentance and to a cessation of their abusive ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I get you to thank Kelsey for coming today and assisting with the message? Thank you.